the institutions surrounding ethics and integrity in government have been strained, stressed, bent, but not broken. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Christopher Starke. Before we jump into today's episode, I would like to wish all of you a happy new year and thanks a lot for your loyal support in 2020. We will kick off the new year with a special guest. Norm Eisen will be on the podcast today. I will leave it to Matthew to introduce Norm with some of his most important accolades. We are very honored to have him on as a guest today, especially now, less than three weeks before Joe Biden's inauguration. In the interview, Norm reflects on corruption and the abuse of power during the Trump administration, but he also looks ahead into the future, for example, the struggle between democracy and kleptocracy. If you want to start the new year with a good deed, and it only takes a couple of minutes, I promise. We would appreciate it very much if you could write us a positive review wherever you get your podcast from. We cannot overstate how much it helps us to grow the Kickback community. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter under at KickbackGAP. We post much corruption-related content there. And now over to the interview between Matthew Stevenson and Norm Eisen. Have fun. Greetings and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. This is Matthew Stevenson, and today I am thrilled to be joined by Norm Eisen. Uh, Norm has had a long, varied, and distinguished career. I'm not going to attempt to recite his entire CV, um, but just a few highlights. Uh, Norm is currently a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution uh, and also serving as outside counsel to a group called the Voter Protection Project. He uh, began his career as a lawyer in private practice, then served in the Obama White House as the special counsel and special assistant to the president on ethics and governance, uh, known familiarly, I believe, as the ethics czar of the Obama White House. <laughs> He then served as the United States ambassador to the Czech Republic from 2011 to 2014. Um, since then, he's done a number of things, uh, perhaps most notable for this conversation, he is a founder and former board chair for a group called the Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, or CREW, which works on issues related to public integrity and accountability, particularly in the United States. He also served as special counsel to the House Judiciary Committee during the impeachment and trial of President Donald Trump. Uh, so again, I'm leaving a lot out, but I think that will serve to give our listeners a sense of, uh, Norm, who you are and where you're coming from. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Matthew. It's an honor to kick back with you on kickback. I appreciate I appreciate the pun, but but very very much appreciated. I think you know, Norm. Maybe the best way to start our conversation is a topic that I'm sure is in the minds of many people who think about corruption, anti-corruption, uh, and that has to do with what we've learned from the past four years of the Trump administration. I think that. Speaking only for myself, uh, before 2016, I'm an American citizen. I study corruption. I studied kleptocracy around the world. I think without even realizing it, subconsciously, I still kind of had this sense that 
the United States of America was in some sense immune to or not subject to the same kinds of problems that cropped up in so many of the other countries that I studied, you know, whether it was Berlusconi in Italy or Jacob Zuma in South Africa or Thaksin in Thailand, there's this type of corrupt, wannabe autocratic leader that we observe all around the world. We hadn't really observed to the same extent in the United States. And then, of course, after the 2016 election, I, I really felt like this drove home, made very real um, a lot of the problems that had seemed like foreign problems. Now that we've reached the end of that four-year period, it seems like a good time to, to reflect a bit on what we've learned not necessarily about Trump specifically, but about the strengths and vulnerabilities of the U.S. system, of U.S. institutions for trying to promote or preserve ethics, integrity, and accountability in government. So from your perspective, what have we learned from the last four years? What, uh, where have we seen failures and where have we seen successes or at least resilience in our institutions? The institutions surrounding ethics and integrity in government have been strained, stressed, bent, but not broken. So I emerge from these four years pleasantly surprised at the resilience of our ethics, compliance, integrity, and you really have to locate it, Matthew, in the context of our rule of law and democracy. And I was optimistic that that might be the case. Uh, and so we're still uh, a month away, of course, from the closure of this process uh, of the Trump administration when the president leaves office, as I'm certain he will on January 20th. But it has been a glass more than half full. And whether, whether it is the, the, the ultimate capstone on that was uh, the American people, I believe, delivering the ultimate verdict on the predations of Donald Trump and those around him, their wrongdoing by ousting them. So I think it is fundamentally a story of challenges, but also of the survival and even the success of the system. Can I ask you to elaborate a little bit more, if I may, on what in your view explains the relative resilience? You said you were pleasantly surprised in some ways that if we were to go back in our time machine, we were put, ourse put ourselves at this point in 2016, it sounds like things have gone um, in some ways better than you had feared, um, which is an interesting thing to say because it certainly doesn't seem like things went especially well. I think especially thinking about this from a comparative perspective of a global perspective, if we do think that the US institutions and the US system proved relatively resilient in the face of this onslaught, do you have a sense of why that is? Does it have something to do with the design of the institutions? Does it have something to do with the kinds of people who work in government? Does it have something to do with our laws, constitutional, statutory, or regulatory, with norms of proper behavior, with political constraints? I mean, this is all speculation, I realize. We, it's just guesswork. But, but what is your sense of what explains the relative resilience of U.S. institutions? So let's take 
an example of the uh, accountability mechanisms. And I'll, I'll start with the president. The most classic trope of wrongdoing is for uh, of corruption is for those uh, with the most power in the system to be able to 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 break the law, to steal, to cheat with impunity. And you know, I in so many ways, I had a front row seat for all of the different accountability efforts against the president, the ultimate one being the election. But I'll take another example. And it really shows this, you know, glass half full or glass two thirds full, let's say, because you're right, it's not total success nor total failure. Uh, There was a great concern that the president would manage to use the power of his office to defeat all criminal investigations of his behavior. Uh, And yet, as we speak today, the New York criminal uh, authorities, the Manhattan district attorney, is speeding towards what I believe will be an indictment of President Trump when he leaves office, probably at some point in 2021. I don't have all the evidence, so I, I assess that outcome as being likely. But the important thing is Trump has slowed that investigation, but he has not stopped it. And uh, I was involved in the litigation that went to the United States Supreme Court that was addressed by a court uh, consisting of five conservatives and four liberals. So the uh, five Uh, appointed by Republican presidents, including two appointed by President Trump, in which the issue of New York states and my former employer, the United States Congress, ability to get Trump's financial information in order to do two different kinds of accountability, the New York criminal case, our congressional investigation of Trump, the, uh, the court held seven to two with three of the conservatives, including both both of the Trump uh, appointees, the then two, now it's three, joining, that yes, Congress and the states had the right to get the president's tax returns and financial information. It's not a home run because the president slowed it down, uh, but it's not a complete loss either because he'll face accountability and frankly, probably the right time for him to face that accountability is when he gets right out of office. That investigation has been grinding forward. Uh, And so I could give many other examples. But um, to me, that's a good one of the glass more than half full for accountability. And and finally, to answer your question, why? Uh, What is the features that make this possible? It is a combination of a strong constitution that we adopted, that we have followed with all our imperfections for almost uh, two and a half centuries, a culture that has built up of the rule of law structures like lifetime tenure in our courts that insulate our judges from political pressures. Those who have to face the Trump voters at the polls have proven in primaries 
Republican primaries have proven to be not as uniformly courageous. Um, so the rule of law has held up and I could tell other, you know, substantial success stories uh, from along the way, but that's one example and the reason why. Terrific. So, so I hate to be the voice of pessimism and, and skepticism, but just for purposes of continuing the conversation, let me press you a little bit on the effectiveness, particularly of the constitutional or more broadly speaking, legal checks on a malfeasance mm. of a corrupt uh, president or a, a president who was going to disregard the law. So your point about the New York investigation of President Trump's business dealings is a good one. My understanding is that that investigation principally concerns business, business conduct that preceded Trump becoming president. Uh, a skin, cynic or a skeptic or a glass half empty kind of person might say the following, and I'd be interested in how you respond. So the, in terms of the legal checks on a president who wants to abuse power, it doesn't look like, at least with respect to the president personally, they've been terribly effective. So first, there's the concern that President Trump, while in office, was receiving the fancy old-fashioned term for this is emoluments, essentially payments from foreign mm -hmm. governments and foreign government officials while in office. Uh, your organization, CREW, the Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, as well as others, filed suit almost immediately after President Trump took office to challenge the um, financial benefits the president's businesses were receiving. Um, and you, you won some victories along the way in the lower courts, suffered some defeats as well. But I guess my point on this one is it's four years later, um, and there's still not a definitive ruling on that. And that's a little bit disheartening that what looked like, from my vantage point, pretty blatant violations of a constitutional requirement, um, you're not able to get a definitive court order four years into it. Then with respect to um, the impeachment of President Trump, which you worked on directly for the House Judiciary Committee, a cynic or a pessimist might say that the wrongdoing, the abuse of power was blatant. Um, but the partisanship and the polarization is such that in this day and age, it's not realistic to imagine that you would get a sufficient supermajority in the Senate to remove a partisan ally, and presidents know this, and will abuse that authority. Um, and then with respect to the investigation of Russia's involvement in the 2016 election, special counsel Mueller's uh, report, though it, because of a previous position by the Department of Justice, didn't come right out and say that President Trump attempted to obstruct justice, it's pretty clear that he did, um, but nothing came of it. So I think this is, this is what leads some people to say, gosh, our legal safeguards, our legal checks against presidential corruption or wrongdoing don't look like they're all that effective. And you swing a couple of million votes in a few key states in the other direction, mm -hmm. and it's possible that President Trump could have been not held accountable at all. So, so why shouldn't we be as cynical and pessimistic as that account might suggest? Well, I, I always look forward to our conversations, Matthew, because you're a contrarian in such a collegial way. Uh, so, and I, to comport with the best podcast protocol, I restrained myself from interrupting you while you were posing the question. So I want a gold star for that. A crew is my former home, which I founded, as you note, I uh, co-founded and was the chairman of the board. So I will take, uh, I suppose, even though I'm no longer affiliated with crew, like a uh, 
proud parent forever uh, can take the credit for the crew's successes, but shift the blame for its failures onto other people. The Let me take those uh, examples in sequence and explain why I think they support my thesis of a mixed bag, but ultimate vindication for the rule of law against President Trump's corruption. I believe that the emoluments cases, which by the way, are still going, um, they survived, you know, they were the first cases of their kind in history. And both of the cases that I brought, the private businesses case in the in New York federal court, um, and the uh, state's cases, the case brought by D.C. and Maryland in uh, Maryland federal court. Uh, those cases are still going. They did both pass legal muster, ultimately. The, uh, it is true that they did not achieve, they did not move fast enough to get us to the relief we wanted. But like impeachment and the Mueller report, they played in, I think, to the American people's rejection emoluments, Ukraine, Russia, those were all on the ballot in November. Uh, And I think that it is a powerful message that uh, Joe Biden got over 300 electoral votes. And let's see, what is the number now? Seven million more Americans voted for him than for Donald Trump. Those are big numbers. Um, Owing to the oddity of the Electoral College, it is true that a smaller number could have swung swung the Electoral College in the opposite direction, but the popular margin is uh, incontestable. So I think that that was very much on the ballot together with, I, I believe that there was a larger pattern, and this is the deepest sense of Trump's corruption. And that's part of the reason that I think the rule of law was vindicated ultimately by the American people. It shouldn't have to go to the American people. Although we certainly knew that they were the ultimate audience for impeachment. We did not believe in working on impeachment that it was likely that the senators, because of the partisanship you described, that we would pick up a sufficient number of senators to oust the president. But we thought it was doing any ha- worth doing anyhow to make the case the American people. In fact, I wrote a book about it, A Case for the American People, which t- t- tied together these, these threads. And I think there are thematic connections. The, oh, the ultimate corruption of Donald Trump is that instead of even pretending to serve the public interest, He solely uses government to serve his own personal and political ends. And um, he's been punished for it, and he hasn't managed to hijack. He put the electoral system under severe duress. That's what my new organization that I started, co-founded the uh, voter protection. That's what we were designed to do, was to help harden the system the American people came through for us by millions and millions of votes. So to me, it's a mixed story. I would rather have had uh, earlier verdicts, but we got the verdict in the end and the earlier fights played into it. 
it's a really interesting perspective because if I understand you correctly, and again, you should you should step in and if I'm misunderstanding it, the, the story that you seem to be telling is one where the legal mechanisms, although they did not achieve relief through legal decisions, and I'm counting a, a conviction and impeachment trial as, as legal in this sense, what they did was to weaken the president politically. That is, the, the legal checks might not have operated directly, but the legal checks enhanced or facilitated the political and electoral checks. Would that be a fair way to pull together the points you were making about the emoluments clause and the impeachment in the Mueller report? The legal, the, the legal system structured the jury verdict uh, for the, the ultimate decision makers in a democracy. Political makes it sound too crassly partisan. As we know, uh, American elections are powerfully influenced by uh, a group of people uh, in the center who reject partisan labels, prefer to describe themselves as independents, and independence broke substantially for Biden in this election. So I don't, I, I would not use the word political. I would use, I would say it was a democratic verdict. But as a, you know, and I think it's appropriate, the ultimate safeguard, it is the ultimate safeguard in a rule of law system, uh, you know, the electoral laws. So that's the, that, 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 that's the words I would put on it. Right. I, I meant political in the electoral sense, not political yes. partisan sense. But yes. That, yes. So continuing for a moment on the theme of legal restraints or legal accountability, I'd very much like to get your perspective on an issue that people have already started to talk about. And I imagine President Biden's Justice Department will confront within a few months of uh, President Biden taking office. And that's whether to investigate and potentially, if the evidence is there, to prosecute President Trump for potential criminal wrongdoing committed while the president was in office. So I recognize that there's a separate state proceeding concerning the president's business dealings before he became president that might, in some sense, make a federal investigation less pressing. But, but put that to the side for the moment, because this is an issue that, you, as I'm sure you know, is not just an issue for the United States right now, but many countries all over the world, many of which with which you have personal familiarity, struggle with this issue, right? There's this tension when there's an outgoing administration that engaged in acts of substantial corruption um, and they're on the way out and there's a new administration. There are these conflicting impulses, one of which has to do with holding accountable people who abuse their power for their own private or partisan gain, but that can be in tension with the desire to turn the page, to move forward, to not have the previous uh, leader or the previous administration still dominating the news cycle and to be able to turn attention to new things. And again, I imagine that people in the Biden Justice Department will be struggling with this, this issue. I know that uh, colleagues of mine, others who work on these issues have different perspectives on this. And I would very much uh, be interested in your perspective if you were um, advising the new attorney general or someone in the Biden Justice Department or the president himself about this issue, what do you think your advice would be? I would say that there should be a strong presumption against the Biden administration, against having the 
president or even the AG the president selects make direct decisions on uh, the prosecution of an outgoing president. I think that if there was wrongdoing, no one should be above the law, but there should be significant internal steps to let the independent career prosecutors within DOJ and FBI agents uh, review those matters. Um, and I, I, would, I would do everything possible to make sure that if there are decisions, it's done with a strong but non, not non-rebuttable presumption. The presumption can be overcome. That, too, is a matter of, or of another part of the rule of law system, the, the norms, the unwritten laws. In Jewish law, we have the, the written law, the Torah Shebiktav, and the unwritten law, the Torah Sheba'al Pei, the, the, the interpretations. And so this is a norm that has built up, and it's an important one. And then, you know, as a practical matter, I would let the New York case play out, because although, as you point out, we think it addresses, we don't actually know all the details, all the evidence, and how it will ultimately play out. And, you know, if tomorrow... We know that Trump's personal banker at Deutsche Bank just retired. So if tomorrow there's some Deutsche Bank malfeasance recently while that, that enters into the New York investigation, we don't know all the directions that will take. But, you know, I would, I would allow that to go first. I would not be in a hurry to get out in front of the new, because it has a natural built-in independence, Matthew. Nobody is going to say Joe Biden is telling. There's no chain of command. There's the state-federal divide that we have in the United States. And let that play out. Uh, and then, so that's the second piece of advice I would give. But, the, you know, the third piece of advice is that no matter what, the president should stay out of it. And Joe Biden has said he'll do that already, repeatedly. That's a healthy thing. You know, as you know, many countries in the world have independent bodies, anti-corruption commissions or ombudsman's offices or what have you that are designed to look into, investigate, in some cases, prosecute high-level corruption or other wrongdoing. And they're designed to be independent of the ordinary Ministry of Justice is what it's called in many countries. Here would be the Department of Justice. It's not clear whether such an arrangement would be constitutional in the US. So this is perhaps an academic question, but I'm curious if you think it would be, uh, assuming for the moment that it would be legally possible, would it be a good idea as a general matter to have a separate department division or agency uh, with law enforcement resp responsibilities when it comes to very senior uh, political officials or former political officials on the along the lines of these anti-corruption bodies that we see in other countries? Or do you think that would not be such a good idea even if it were legally permissible? I, I do believe that there are things that need to be done to strengthen the independence of DOJ. You know, we could have, for example, much more disclosure. Congress is considering, the House is considering legislation to have uh, disclosure of uh, much more robust disclosure of White House contacts. That is, again, that's a rule when I was working in the White House, as, as you noted in your introduction, as the ethics are. That's a rule that we codified by memo. We had a memo uh, from the White House counsel. I wrote it, I think, with uh, Ian Basson, 
who uh, has gone on to great distinction as uh, the head of Protect Democracy in the Trump years, so then was a young lawyer in the White House Counsel's Office, uh, saying that you can't have such contacts. And even the president, even President Obama was limited in the contacts he was allowed to have and sometimes would reach out to ask if, you know, was he allowed to talk about such and such with DOJ? More often, he just stayed away from it, which is the way it should be. Um, That should be, you know, there should be more robust statutory limits. One of the very interesting things about Trump is he had, in all of his predations, this is another success for the rule of law system, he has not yet defied a court order. He takes some very aggressive readings of the law, but when the courts ultimately rule, you know, he does not defy them. And uh, perhaps we'll see that in the last 30 days. I hope not. So statutes are followed in the United States and DOJ independence needs to be better enshrined in statute. That's actually a perfect transition, I think, to the next uh, topic or, or set of questions I wanted to put to you, because we've been talking a lot about what's happened the last four years, retrospectively thinking about what we've learned from the Trump administration. And as you optimistically emphasize, the resilience, at least to some degree, of U.S. institutions in the face of those mm-hmm. challenges. But let's look forward a little bit. Imagine the next, let's say, four years plus. Mm. Um, I'd be very interested in your perspective on the highest priority areas for reform or change. Because even though, as you said, the glass may be two thirds full, that still implies there's a third that's empty um, and there's room for improvement. So if you had the ear of the Biden administration or the United States Congress or others with the power to do something to reform or improve US institutions, and perhaps you do, um, what would be your highest priority areas for improvement? Well, I'm going to take constitutional amendments and money in politics off the table because those are, uh, given the uh, makeup of the Senate, those are off the table. I'd love to see a constitutional amendment to do away with the extreme uh, leeway that we give corporations to do spending in our elections, for example, but it's not, it's not in our immediate future. I think that the highest priority issues are ones where we, where we should, we should focus on not just on reflexive responses to Trump, but thinking about the ways, and you alluded to this in one of the questions or our colloquy, our back and forth, You know, the past four years have been a stress test. Which of those stresses, which of the gaps that have been revealed, the weaknesses that have been revealed by this stress test um, are are most likely to be generally confronted by future administrations? So in no particular order, um, I put in a set of limitations with President Obama He writes about them in his new book uh, about our work together on this, uh, limiting special interest influence and and other distortions. The same 
it, it, it was a, a weakness that Trump exposed with his own hijacking of the public interest for his own narrow interests, uh, you know, as when he had asked Ukraine to pursue phony charges, not even to pursue, to announce the pursuit of phony charges against Joe Biden as an electoral issue. It had nothing to do with the best interests of America and everything to do with Trump's political and personal agenda. Um, so that the, there is a need to keep people focused on the public interest by screening off the special interests. And the, the things we put in our Obama executive order should be enshrined into law. That should not be a matter of presidents coming and going, because when Trump came in, he gutted it. Um, I think Biden will do a strong, maybe even stronger than Obama's, learn from the lessons of the Obama executive order that I had worked on. So that's one area. That's what, you know, conflicts of interest and ethics. I think that... Um, those kinds of rules are reinforced by transparency. So I think we need to do much more. Again, in the Obama White House, we had, we decided we would put the White House visitor records online and ultimately millions of visitors who were able to sort, search, sort, see who was coming and going from the White House. And that reinforced the rules. I knew that lobbyists were not coming and having meetings they shouldn't have because we had these records. It's true, there was a famous, what was called in Washington, the Caribou Coffee Exemption. There was a coffee shop down the block from the White House campus and people would go there. I, I thought it was a little overstated, however, because one, at least you were having those meetings in public to the extent you needed to have them. And two, the people in the White House are too busy to be constantly leaving and going to Caribou Coffee. So be that as it may, strong conflicts rules moved into law, transparency to go with it. We need better whistleblower protections because they help stimulate investigations. And we need more autonomy for Congress. Congress now, if, if you defy a subpoena as Trump did over and over again, Congress has to go to court and it takes years. And so we need a speedy I favor Congress using its inherent contempt powers to take set up a kind of court within Congress to move that very quickly and have fines and whatnot to enforce their subpoenas. So those are a few of the different measures. What about with respect to uh, the president's financial conflicts of interest or potential financial conflicts of interest? Mm. Again, I know this is something that crew wor has worked on quite a bit including with the emoluments clause litigation, which is yes. out is still ongoing, but in other uh, fora as well. So I know there have been a, a range of proposals uh, for how to address that problem. Um, there's been legislation proposed that would require uh, presidents and other high-level officials to place their assets in blind trusts, for example. Others have expressed skepticism about the blind trust solution and emphasized more the importance of complete transparency with respect to the president's business dealings. But again, given this is an issue that you uh, and organizations like Crew have, have worked on, I'd, I'd I wonder what uh, recommendations you would put forward for the new administration for Congress with respect to that issue in particular, because it might come up again, right? And it's not, not so much with the Biden presidency, but President Trump may well not be the last mogul business type to, to seek the White House. Unlike the problem of special interest, which afflicts special interest influence, which afflicts every administration and uh, 
President Obama writes in his book about a funny conversation that he and I had with some senior White House officials where we were talking about the ways that the special interests tried to lure you in with, you know, very extravagant uh, in-town or out-of-town uh, junkets or events or activities. And uh, the president we were talking about and the president uh, finally said to me, well, Norm, what is the rule? How are we going to decide what to do? And my answer was, well, if it's fun, you can't do it. So those are ubiquitous, even such an upright administration. I, I really do think it was, well, no human enterprise achieves perfection. I think the Obama administration was the most scandal-free in modern American history, maybe in American history. You know, you had nobody indicted. You had nobody prosecuted. You had nobody convicted. You certainly didn't have to pardon, uh, commute the sentence of your former officials or friends in the Obama administration. Those kinds of problems are ubiquitous. We made it a very long way in American history without having a president who felt free to uh, haul in emoluments, foreign and domestic, indiscriminately, things of cash and other things of value from foreign governments and domestic governments. President's not supposed to collect anything but his salary and uniformly available benefits like Social Security from domestic state or federal governments, because that also can distort his judgment. So for me, the emoluments issues seem to be sui generis. I think Trump would have been deeply corrupt, even absent the emoluments. They were an indicator of corruption, but the deepest corruption were the ways he tried to hijack uh, the system to serve himself rather than the American people. I take It's a pattern, Matthew. The corrupt pattern uh, was, uh, you know, when, when, I, when I was questioning witnesses in Ukraine, one of my witnesses, Pam Carlin, who you must be friends with, professor, also a law professor, a distinguished one, Pam at Stanford, uh, said uh, she testified in the impeachment. This was about the president saying to the Ukrainian president, can you do us a favor, though, after he described things that the United States had done for Ukraine, then the quid pro quo, the reciprocity, the essence of corruption. Can you do us a favor, though, right? He's trading. He's done official acts. Now he wants a personal benefit for it. And Pam said, can you imagine if we had a national disaster? And President Trump said, yes, I'll help you, but can you do us a favor, though? Well, to a governor? Well, that's just what he said in COVID. He says, I, if they don't say thank you, I don't call. Uh, and over and over again, he infused the COVID with his quid pro quo mentality. That's the deepest corruption of Donald Trump. And that is what, and we see it in the pardons, now against, for example, his campaign supporter, like uh, Duncan Hunter, who had been convicted of corruption, now being set free, and or George Papadopoulos, his former campaign aide. 
So I think that uh, I'm more concerned with those kinds of recurring systemic challenges. Emoluments have their place. There should, there's more that can be done to regulate the Constitution. There can be a statute there too. But I look at the special interests first. That's where I think we need to start. So it's interesting because, um, and that was, a, that was an incredibly informative answer, although it didn't actually directly respond to the particular question I gave uh, in terms of what specific <laughs> things we want to do about the conflicts of interest issue. No, but it's, it's fascinating because, again, I want to make sure I'm, I'm getting the larger theme here. It sounds like what you're suggesting is that although, of course, we should take seriously the president's financial conflicts of interest, of course, we should take seriously the emoluments issues and the fact that you know foreign governments are arranging for stays in his hotel or renting out space in businesses that, his, uh, that Trump's business partly owns. It sounds like you're suggesting that those things are kind of symptoms in a way. They're not, they're not mm. great, but that's not the root problem, the thing that should really worry us. The thing that should really worry us is this transactional mentality towards public service and the instinct to have people stay at your hotel and collect income. Like That's not what's causing the bad things to happen. That's just kind of a, a signal that this is the well, kind of mentality. Was that fair? Do you think that it's a deeper uh, problem? Uh, I, I think that, that both emoluments, these corrupt pardons, and the Ukraine conversation, so much else Trump has done, serial violations of our rules against using the White House for political purposes, uh, but refusing to punish any of his subordinates who broke those rules, and on and on and on, um, that those are all symptoms of this deeper mentality, corrupt mentality that unifies kleptocracies. I saw a thing, very interesting uh, analysis recently, that the coming clash of great powers is between, between democracies and kleptocracies. And these four years were a struggle for which would dominate in the United States, that they're all symptoms of the desire to serve oneself rather than the public interest in office. And what I was saying was, why focus on the relatively more unusual symptom of emoluments first? Why not start with the most common symptoms, the more common symptoms that have been highlighted by the past four years, like these just the day in, day out drip, drip, drip of special interest influence. Let's not leave the Obama, the rigors of the Obama limits uh, to the whims of a president coming and going. And as Obama did, signing an executive order, good. then Trump threw it out. Let's codify those into law. But I don't want to quibble. I think that in there should be a global package, and it should include some emoluments restrictions as well. Terrific. So we're almost at the end of our uh, time, but I wanted to, if I may, ask about one other theme. And this is motivated in part by the fact that I feel like, you know, we're a couple of Americans having a pretty parochial American conversation about the U.S. system and, and the, the, the outgoing and incoming presidents. But of course, um, you have a lot of international experience as well as your domestic experience, especially through your role as the ambassador to the Czech Republic, but also yes. your engagement in places like Ukraine and abroad. And I want, there's so many things I would like to ask you about some of the international <laughs> dimensions. We don't have time. So let me ask 
Um, I'm going to put three questions to you, but don't answer all of them. Pick the one right. that you're most interested in. Um, so we can end maybe our conversation on a little bit more of a, of a global note. Um, and here are the, the, the menu of things that I, that I would, would like to hear, hear from you about. And again, pick, pick your favorite. One question is what, if anything, the United States in this particular moment can learn from the experience of other countries abroad confronting these kinds of problems. As I said at the beginning of our conversation, I felt like as a student of global corruption, when this happened in the United States, I felt like a mm. lot of these problems that had seemed very much like foreign problems or things that I studied as an intellectual matter had, had come home. So, so one thing that I, I'm interested in is whether anything in your international experience suggests lessons for the United States. The second question would be the, the inverse of this whether you think based on what we've learned from the United States, are there any lessons from the US experience that you think could be useful to people in other countries at whatever stage of development hmm. who are struggling with these kinds of challenges? Especially if, as you said earlier, the US has exhibited actually some pretty reassuring resilience in the face of this extraordinary stress test. Is there anything from the U.S. experience that might, might prove helpful abroad? And the third, more international kind of question that uh, I'd, I'd be interested in, 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 in your views about has to do with what the Biden administration's priorities should be for the global fight against corruption and kleptocracy, picking up on what you just said hmm. a moment ago about the, the next major global struggle may well be between rule of law, open societies, and kleptocratic societies. So you talked a little bit about what the reform agenda should be on the domestic ethics front, but there's also a question about what the reform agenda should be internationally. That's far too much for us to talk about in the time that we have remaining, um, but pick whatever you are most interested in or feel like you have the most to say mm -hmm. about, and maybe uh, try to do, have a little bit of a global perspective at the end of our chat. I'll try to do all three. I think the informed both by what the world has to teach us and what we have to teach the world, we should approach the uh, global anti-corruption agenda uh, with great humility first. I think that there's a healthy, you know, maybe you'll accuse me of being too congenitally optimistic, but there's, it's, it's taken us down a peg as the United States to have suffered the same struggles. And we should admit that. We should say, look, all democracies are uh, susceptible to attack from within by populist, kleptocratic illiberals. It's a weakness of democracy. And we should share the lessons that we've learned that you and I have reflected on of the past four years, like the importance of a strong independent judiciary, um, how amazing all these Trump judges who've rejected his post-election, uniformly rejected his post-election lawsuit, or um, as I described, the uh, efforts in the Supreme Court to get his documents are on and on. And then in, I do think that, you know, we can learn a lesson from the experiences of places that have undergone a populist shock, like Berlusconi's Italy, uh, and how they have emerged uh, and uh, endured. As you know, there's been some challenging times in 
post-Berlusconi Italy. How can we avoid some of that? And uh, uh, finally, I would, we should try much harder to anchor um, anti-corruption in the general uh, theory and practice of democracy. It's not a niche or fringe issue. I'm going to do some scholarship in 2021 on the connection between anti between corruption and um, liberalism. We've seen it in, for example, the some of the research about the resource curse, so-called resource curse or Dutch disease in um, uh, the natural resource field. So uh, those are some of the thoughts. That's fantastic. That's extraordinarily helpful. I look forward to reading more and learning more uh, of, of, the, of what comes out of these projects that you're engaged in, continuing to follow the important work that you and the organizations you're affiliated with are, are doing to, to protect the rule of law and to promote integrity in the United States government and abroad. So um, thank you very much. Um, this is Matthew Stevenson, and my guest today has been Norm Eisen. Uh, I'm, I know how busy you are uh, with all the important work that you're doing, and I very much appreciate your taking the time to share your insights with me and with our listeners. So, Norm, thank you so much. Thank you, Matthew. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. If you want to learn more about Norm's work, check out the show notes of this episode. If you liked the interview, make sure that you also listen to our episode with Jack Goldsmith, which also addresses many of the discussed topics today and offers a slightly different perspective of some of the issues. Also, make sure to find us on Facebook and Twitter under at KickbackGAP. We post much corruption-related content there, so if you haven't already, make sure to click the follow button. We would also appreciate it if you could use your own social media channels to post about Kickback and recommend us to your family and friends. Kickback is a joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. It is made by Niels Kürbis, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleinpass and me, Christopher Starke, with music by Kaihan Gorkar. That's it for now. I hope you start the new year with a good first week and let's hope for a better 2021.